Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. So we're in John chapter 5 tonight. Uh, so um, I, I received numerous, numerous messages throughout the week from people that really, really appreciated the Dawn Wall documentary that I mentioned in last week's study. You know, people said, great documentary, that was awesome, we glued the whole time. You know, one message about someone who really liked the message last week, that that was the thing. And so uh, I'm glad you appreciated the documentary. I hope the message was useful uh, to you in the thing. But tonight we have uh, another message. It's in the next chapter of John. There's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting thing that Jesus did in his ministry, um, is that he came to he came to do a lot of things. I mean, obviously, primarily he came to give his life for our sins uh, and to bridge the gap between fallen man and a holy God. But uh, but in his ministry and in demonstrating the heart of the Father, uh, he he came to individuals as he still does today uh, with the intent of of bringing healing, uh, of of restoring, of of uplifting and fixing. But in the process of that. He had to, as any physician or healer or helper would, he had to expose the wound. And, and sometimes in exposing a wound or dealing with a wound, there's a re-wounding or there's a feeling of pain or uh, that there's something that, that brings vulnerability. And, and that was just something that Jesus did. He, a man with a withered hand, Jesus would say, rise up in the midst. And, and, and everybody would be looking at this infirmity that this man obviously was ashamed of. You know, this woman, he exposes her iniquity. You know, he says, the man that you're not living with now is not your husband. And, and, you know, she's shocked by it. There's this reaction. And Jesus has his way. He's not trying to shame, but it's part of the process of healing. And so tonight, as we look at another encounter of someone who is going to be made whole, as we work through this text, our intention is not to learn the history of what Jesus did, but we want to experience his intention in putting it in the Bible in our own lives. And sometimes that involves a rewounding. Sometimes it means he's putting his finger on something. Sometimes it draws certain emotions out of us that we don't want to feel particularly, or it brings thoughts of things. And sometimes there's even questionings. And so, you know, as we get into this tonight, in, in a room of people this size, all of us have something that can be affected by this. Sometimes, you know, the, 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 um, the context raises questions and, and leaves us with unanswered things. And so, you know, I just lead in that way to make us sensitive to the fact that Jesus has a good intention. That his desire is to make us whole and to make us well. And so with that, we look at another uh, episode of Jesus encountering a man uh, who will be transformed. And so we're in John chapter 5, and I want to read the passage. We're just going to read through verse 16 and then see what happened here. It says that after this, it says that there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market or the sheep gate you might have in your translation, a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, which has five porches or five covered colonnades. And in these five porches lay a great multitude of impotent folk, 
of blind, halt, or lame would be another translation of that word you might have, withered, that we're waiting for the moving or the stirring of the water, this pool, this pool in Bethesda. For, and here's the reason why they were waiting, it says an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water, stirred it up, and whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped into the pool was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, Will you be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, And he took up his bed, and he walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, He that made me whole, the same said to me, Take up your bed and walk. He has authority by way of power. So they asked him, What man is that which said to thee, Take up your bed and walk? And he that was healed knew not who it was, For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you are made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. And so the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore, because of this, did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. And so we have this this episode that took place. And the setup that the Apostle John gives to us uh, in this, first of all, is that it took place in Jerusalem. Now, if you've kind of been following, we've been successively walking with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. And his ministry began just outside of Jerusalem. And from there, he traveled the 70 miles north to Galilee, which was where the wedding took place, where he turned the water into wine, which was then followed by a trip back down to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, which is where he flipped over the tables, which then, after that, he traveled back up to Galilee again, passing through Samaria, which is where he met the woman that we studied last week, And then he made his way the rest of the way up to Galilee for a short season. And now in chapter 5, the occasion is that he comes back down to Jerusalem for another feast, a feast that is unnamed. We're told that it was a feast of the Jews, which meant that it probably wasn't the official feasts that they would have to celebrate, but it was one of the added feasts that they kept at certain times throughout the year. And so that's the occasion now, and I share that with you just to say that it's still very early on in Jesus' public ministry. He probably hasn't even called all 12 of the apostles yet. He might have a few that he he has called with him full-time, but this is still very early on in the thing. We're told that as he comes into Jerusalem and into the area where the temple would be, where the celebrations would be, We're told that by one of the particular gates into the city, there was a pool in an area that was called Bethesda. 
And so he comes to this place, Bethesda, which is the Hebrew word. And I actually looked up what Bethesda means, what the word actually means. And what I found is that it actually means YouTube. That, that if you look it up, it's called YouTube. And there were five different platforms in this area. And, and they were called Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, Reddit, and the documentary section of Netflix. And so Jesus comes into this, and what he finds dwelling in this space, in this place of endless information, an endless hope of solutions, what he finds there is he finds a bunch of people that are described in four different ways. One is that they are impotent. And what the word impotent means is, now this is the other, you know that that was not really, those things aren't really what what it means. This is actually what impotent means. Impotent means without power. It means not making an impact. It means not leaving a mark. It means reduced to an existence that is void of contributing value. And that is the first description of the type of people that were laying in this place, is that they looked at their own lives, and now for them, perhaps it was literal, but the reason why it's in the Bible is because the conditions of man are not just always literal, but sometimes they're also spiritual, sometimes they're also mental, sometimes they're also practical. And so there was in this place a bunch of people whose lives were not counting for anything. They were impotent. The second thing it says to describe them is that they were blind. And we know that biblically, blindness is a literal condition that happens, but it's also a spiritual condition. In fact, more often in the Bible, blindness is attributed to a condition of the heart rather than just a condition of the eyes and the communication between the eyes and the brain. So what does it mean to be blind? It means to have no vision. It means to have no vision for your life. It means to have no direction, no path no goal, no understanding of what you were made for or why, no ability to see what you could be or how you could get to where you could be or to see what it is that God made you specifically for. It's a condition of blindness, a lack of vision. The third condition that it says of those that were there in that place is that they were halt or rather that they were lame. And what it means to be lame in the physical sense, it means that you can't walk or you can't move. It means that you're stuck. It means that you have no strength. It means you have no energy. It means that you have no drive. You have no ambition, no motivation, that you want nothing from life. You're helpless. You can't find an on-ramp. You've used up the resources that you had to try to get yourself somewhere, and you find yourself in a place where you're physically, mentally, and practically lame. You're not moving. You're idle. And then the fourth description of these people is that they were withered. And what it means to be withered, it means that things that are supposed to work in my life or things that maybe even used to work in my life are not working the way that they're supposed to. The hardware is still there, 
but the software isn't communicating in such a way where the synapses are connecting and I can employ and use the things that I have. It's kind of like when you have a computer and the screen still works, but the keyboard ain't communicating, the mouse ain't working, and the touch screen's not responding. So it's the faculties are there, but there's a lameness or a withering to it. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. And so Jesus comes and he finds this whole multitude of people. And this is the general description of their condition. They are impotent. They are blind. They are lame. And they are withered. They're sitting around and life is passing them by. And they are not living the life that God intended man to live. And what they're doing in this place of waiting is they are waiting for something that they saw on YouTube. It tells us that there was a superstition, and we know it's a superstition because there is no scriptural foundation or any historical documentation of this thing actually taking place where they were waiting by this pool for some angel, this this thing that might be, to come at a time that they don't know, and something might happen, wherein if they happen to be the first one in when these waters are stirred, that then they can maybe be made whole of the disease that they had. It's something that they saw, they heard about, and they're waiting idly for this whole thing to happen. And Jesus now comes into the scene. Now, the question is going to be raised, of course, is like, what made them think? And where did it come from that this pool had some power in it? Now, probably it was a superstition that began way back in Babylon and then translated into Greek mythology and the worship of one of the Greek gods, Aesculapius, which was the god of healing. And Aesculapius was worshipped in a temple called the Aesculapion. And in the Aesculapion, there was something called healing pools. And, And the belief was that when the waters bubbled up, that if you got into the holy pool in the Aesculapion, that you could be healed. And somehow... The tradition of that Greek mythological tradition was taking place in this area in Jerusalem. And these people, having no other hope of anything that could fix their condition, resigned themselves to sit in these pools or by this pool in these porches and wait to see if perhaps maybe this thing can come. And into the scene now steps Jesus And we're told that he approaches a certain man. Now, we're told a couple of things about this man. We're told, first of all, that he has been in this condition for 38 years. Now, most likely, this is not a condition that came upon him from birth. And I believe that for two reasons. First of all, because usually when a condition is from birth, the Bible says that they were in this condition from the time that they were born. The other reason is because later on in the passage, in verse, I think it's down in verse, I wrote it down, seven, later, somewhere, verse 14, it actually says that Jesus had a conversation with this guy, and he said to him, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the implication is that something this man did, or, or some thing that he allowed in his life, 
was at least a contributing cause in the condition that he now finds himself in. And so it probably wasn't from birth, but it has been a very, very long time, 38 years and things. And we also know that in some way it left this man impotent. But beyond that, we know nothing of his condition. And I think that's intentional. I believe that God did not tell us exactly what's going on with this man because he wants it to be generic enough that we can insert ourselves in the story. So wherever we fall on things, this man was there. So we know that no matter what, how old he was, the best years of his life had been stolen by this infirmity. And we know that God wants us to hear what he has to say to us in this. This passage is universally relevant and it's continually relevant. And here's what I want to say to you tonight is that this pool, these porches, and these people could be any one of us at any particular time of our life. And here's why. Because when we look at one another, we judge on a sliding scale of man's perspective. And from man's perspective, we look at some people and we say that person is whole and they've got it all together. Whereas on the other side of the scale, we look at others and we say that person's messed up and someone's got to throw them in the pool. You know, And we have this perspective where we judge whole and halt based on what we can see and what we can understand. But from God's perspective, which is the perspective that really matters, when God looks at humanity, he sees a vast sea, a sum total of all human beings, and he sees in them impotence, blindness, lameness, and a withering. Why? Because God sees that in our fallen condition, we are at best a fraction or a shell of what he intended each of us to be. And I know that when I look at these things and I say, Lord, there are areas of my life where I am absolutely without power, where I find that I can do nothing and I watch people living and I'm on the sidelines and life is passing me by. There are areas of my life, big areas of my life where I feel like I have no vision at all. I can't see. I can't see how where I came from makes sense in where I am, and I certainly can't project that into where I'm going or where I'm supposed to be. And when it comes to lacking vision, I am that man. I'm the man who can't see. When it comes to being lame, sometimes I see people that seem to have life figured out, and I see them just advancing and moving, and I find that I'm stuck and I can't move, and I find that I'm the man by the pool who can't move. And when I see things that are withered, I think of things in my own life. Things that maybe in my past worked, that somewhere died along the way. Things that maybe in my childhood were brightness that I thought would translate into something in the future. But maybe because of things that I've chosen, or maybe things that I didn't choose that have happened to me, now I find that those things that once were have become withered in my life, and they are nothing any longer. And from God's perspective, what I recognize and realize is that I'm the man by the pool. And if I resign myself to nothing else, in a condition or in a time, I can find myself sitting on YouTube, searching the, the forums of Reddit, watching documentaries, looking for solutions to things I can't fix, conditions that I don't want to be in so that I can get somewhere that I want to be that maybe I don't even know what it is. I'm the man. And what that means is that we are the people. And that when Jesus comes into the scene, he doesn't just see some by the pool. He came into a world 
where he sees a fallen collective body of humanity that is in great need of being made whole. He sees impotent, he sees blind, he sees halt, and he sees withered. What's the counterpart in today's world of these people that were there at the pool? I talk to a lot of people, and you do too. This is just conversations that we have in everyday life. But people that, 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 that feel like they're living in a constant state of weakness. You ever hear about how um, when you go to a third world country, they, they have like power in their homes, you know, and, and in electricity in their houses? Maybe. You know, like some days it's on and other days it's not on. And some days it's on for a couple hours and they have to get everything done for the couple hours that it's on. And, and I talk to a lot of people that, that that's what they feel like in their gen. They, they wake up in the morning and they wonder, I wonder if the power is going to be on today. I wonder if I'm going to have enough energy to make it from the time I get up until I get all the way to bed. I wonder if I'm going to have the mental capacity or the social capacity to do the things that are going to be expected of me or people are going to ask me for. And people live in this constant state of weakness. I talk to people that feel like they have no vision for their life, feel like they have no energy, not enough to do what they need to, that they don't have drive, that they have no goals, there's no ambition, they've lost their hunger, and they've lost their fight. And I talk to people constantly that feel like their lives are withered. They lack the faculties to be productive, or they've lost them, or they've fallen asleep, or they've missed the bus on an opportunity or a dream, and they're past the point of finding God's purpose and God's place for them, and they're resigned to wait out their time to live an unproductive life, kind of like the children of Israel who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And I talk to people like that every single day. Sometimes I talk to the man in the mirror, and I hear that every single day. There's other people in our world today that the infirmity is actually physical. I talk to people that experience a consistent feeling of brain fog, chronic inflammation and pain, strange physical symptoms that are nebulous, undiagnosable, and they've been to doctors and specialists and uh, naturopaths and everything else, left to search it out on their own and try to figure out what's going on, and they just have a general feel that they're not whole. I talk to people that feel stuck in some way, in some invisible prison that they can't seem to shake themselves from. Well, here's what the passage says about a man in such a condition who has an encounter now with Jesus who came into the world to make whole what is broken. It says, first of all, in the passage that he was a certain man, and I hope you didn't pass that over. Because what that means is that when Jesus came, he didn't just see a multitude of people, but he saw individuals. And the reason why he encountered just the one and not the collective whole is because he wanted you and I to understand that when he looks at even a room like this, he doesn't see a number of people that are here. He sees individuals and he knows individual lives and he sees individual places. The Bible says that we are living stones, That God has, in a sense, taken us, and what he is doing is he is shaping us and forming us of unique materials that only he knows to fit into a particular place for a particular reason in what he calls his temple, his dwelling place where he lives. 
Now, what that means, the fact that we are living stones, it means that God has a specific intention for every one of our lives. He has something that he wants us to be like. That's why he gave us the personality that he gave us. He gave us a particular color or a particular composure, something that we're made up of, that reflects and refracts light that comes off of other stones in certain ways. And what that means is that he not only shapes us individually, but he also places us individually in where we end up in life, intentionally knowing that that's where we fit. But what happens is because we don't know him, and because we don't allow him to do his work in our lives, and we don't yield to him to place us where we're to be, then we take advice from other people, and we lean on our own intuition, and we make decisions for ourselves. and what that means is that we end up in a place and in a shape that God never intended for us, and thus we feel lost. We feel like we're in the wrong place constantly. Because we never ask, we never come to him. But Jesus sees the individual. He sees us and he knows us and he wants to do something in our life individually. The second thing we're told is that Jesus saw the man and he knew that he had been in that condition for a long time. Now that's interesting to me when it says that Jesus knew that the man was in that condition for a long time. Because you almost think that's a given right? Well, Jesus is Jesus, and Jesus knows everything. He's God, and so he just knows, but not really, not in his earthly ministry. He subjected himself to the limitations of humanity. In Mark chapter 9, verse 21, it won't go up on the screen, but you can write it down, look it up later. There was another encounter that Jesus had where there was a child that was demon-possessed that couldn't talk, but that would foam at the mouth and continually throw themselves in a fire. And Jesus was summoned to come and help these parents raise... Now, can you... Maybe you're a parent. You can relate to that. You have children that are kind of similar. You know, I don't know what they're going to do next. And so the parents call on Jesus. Could you come and help? And in Mark chapter 9, verse 21, Jesus comes, Jesus sees, and Jesus asks. And he says, how long has this condition been in his life? He didn't know. He needed to be told. But in this instance... Jesus sees the man, and Jesus knew. Now, that means that when Jesus looked at this man, and he saw where he was sitting, and he saw the demeanor on his face, he saw past what was going on on the surface, and he could see some things that were going on underneath. He he could see that this man was carrying secret shame inside, feeling like his life was wasted. He could see the long extended pain that this man was feeling watching other people get their healing or have their breakthrough or move forward in life when he felt himself was left left behind. He could see in this man's face the regret that he was carrying for maybe the choices that he had made, for the advice that he had taken from the wrong people, or the advice that he ignored from the right people. And he could see that regret in his face. Jesus could see, he knew that it was the choices that this man made that left him in this condition. He saw that this man had become set in his ways and that he lacked now the motivation even to try anything new. He couldn't even get in the water anymore. Jesus knew that this man didn't believe right things about God that his faith was all messed up. He was believing in water and in healing pools and that his faith was crooked. 
Jesus knew and saw that this man could do nothing about his circumstances. And I hope maybe that gives someone hope here tonight. Because sometimes we can get that twisted view that God helps those that help themselves. Here we see God helping a man who could not help himself. And I find that God is much more apt to help someone who can't help themselves. Jesus understood the position that this man was in. He was individual. He was seen. He was known by Jesus. And Jesus comes to this man, and it's the most remarkable part of this passage, and he asks him a question. He doesn't ask him a question about what he believes. He doesn't ask him if he wants his life changed. He doesn't even ask him if he wants to be healed, which is a completely different word than what Jesus uses when he poses the question. He doesn't ask him if he wants to repent, if he regrets his past. He doesn't ask any of those questions. He asks one single question to this man. He says, will thou be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? And I love this question. Because what it tells me, first of all, it tells me that what Jesus was extending to this man was essentially a blank check. He doesn't ask about the condition. He doesn't point out the condition. He just basically lets it be known right off the bat that it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how deep it goes. It doesn't matter what it stems from. It doesn't matter how long or how severe the condition is. Nothing is too hard. Do you want to be made whole? It also tells us something else, a little bit deeper. It tells us that sometimes the issues of impotence and of blindness and of lameness and of a withering within the life, that sometimes those issues result from something on the inside that's unwhole. See, he says, would you be made whole? And the word literally means complete. It's not the word healed. That's a totally different word. It's used in other places. Like, it's one little thing that needs to be fixed. You know, maybe for someone who's impotent, the implication is his legs, because this guy has to pick up his bed and walk, you know. But that's not the question. Jesus doesn't say you want your legs to work again. He says, do you want to be made whole? That's something different. That's something deeper. But by asking the question, it it lets us realize that sometimes the issues that we're facing in our life are symptoms of something deeper on the inside that needs to be made whole, that's not made right yet. We think we see this often in Scripture. We see the outward conditions are indicative of inward spiritual problems. Remember in our last study, the woman at the well? Remember? Jesus addressed a condition. You're thirsty. And she said, yes, Lord, I don't want to come to this well anymore. And Jesus said, no, that's not the issue. The thirst is a symptom of something inside that's deeper. You need a change. You need to be made whole. You need to be made right on the inside. Later on in John's gospel, he's going to talk to another group of people that were fed, and he's going to say, listen, you're not here because you saw a miracle. You're here because you, you ate the loaves and you were filled. There was a hunger that was satisfied at a deeper level. See, sometimes conditions, symptoms, are an indication of something deeper on the inside that needs to be made whole, that needs to be fixed. It tells us that. It also tells us that it doesn't matter what it is. God's able to fix it. Now listen to the man's response. He gives an excuse in verse 7. Actually, I don't even want to say it's an excuse. I don't think it is an excuse. I think it's reality. 
It says that the impotent man answered and he said, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Now, some have tried to say, well, this guy's just full of excuses. He doesn't want to, you know, whatever. He's resigned himself. He doesn't want to be healed and all that. No, no, no. I think he wants, I think this is just plain reality. I picture this guy probably for the first 14 years of this place, this infirmity, hobbling, rolling, thumping his way, trying to, he's done everything. And he's at a point where everything has failed him and there is no other options and he's just sitting on this thing. He's saying, this is my condition and I'm resigned to this hope. This is all I've got left. So he gives his answer and then Jesus gives his cure. He looks at the man in verse 8 and he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. He gives his word, which is the power, his command, And it tells us in verse 9 that immediately, that the result of Jesus' word in this man's life, it says, immediately the man was made whole and he took up his bed and he walked. And the same day was the Sabbath day. That Jesus' word was absolutely with power. Now I'm amazed at how easy it was for Jesus to fix something that a man... And all of the systems of the world, no matter how innovative or how available they might be, that nothing was able to fix this condition. There was no infomercial. There was no product. There was no CBD oil. There was no procedure. There was nothing that this man... But in one word, Jesus could speak to this man and Jesus could heal him, make him whole, just like that, with an immediate response and reaction. Now, I read that, and I'm amazed with Jesus. But it doesn't give me much hope. Because it makes me ask the question, that if God, if you went out of your way to emphasize the ease in which you can do all things, if you truly are, as you say, the God of all flesh, that nothing is too hard for you, that you speak and things respond, And it can happen this quickly, where in just one word, one encounter at one moment, then why am I still in the condition that I'm in? Why am I still weak? Why am I still lame? Why do I still lack vision? Why haven't you done the thing that I've been asking and seeking you for for so long And Lord, if it's so easy for you, then why does it feel like I have to jump through so many hoops? Sometimes I feel like unless I pray the right combination of words that God won't hear me. Unless maybe I've built up my spiritual resume to a certain point where I can maybe think that I deserve it enough to stir up the faith for me to believe it. Why does it seem so hard? Why does it take so long? I want to give you three reasons suggested to us in the text that answer that question, because it's a question that all of us have. Or, Or maybe you're not like me. Why does it take so long? Why is it so elusive? Why was it just one? Why didn't he heal the multitude of them? Well, here's the answers. Number one is because this man encountered Jesus, and the rest of them didn't. This man encountered Christ. Now, Listen, I want you to understand something. That the fact that Jesus only healed this one guy and not the whole bunch of them that were sitting there, 
it does not speak to the exclusivity of the man. Jesus chose this one, and he's the fortunate one of all the rest. Jesus had one healing to give out that day, and this man got it. We know that's not true because there are other places in the Gospels where it says that multitudes of sick, blind, lame people were brought to Jesus, and in one evening, he would heal them all, that every one of them would be made whole. So so it isn't the exclusivity of this one man. It, It speaks not of that, but rather it speaks to, listen, this is important, it speaks to the exclusivity of the solution. The solution to every condition is one thing, Jesus. He's the solution. And this man, having an encounter with Jesus, points to the fact that Jesus is the answer. It's part of the reason why Jesus told him to pick up his mat or pick up his bed. So you might think, well, Jesus would just tell him to leave it there. He doesn't need it anymore. (laughs) Wait, leave it for the next guy. But a part of it is that by carrying his mat, it would inspire hope and point to the solution. See, it was a testimony for him. How did this happen in your life? I encountered Jesus. Jesus did it. The second reason why this man is healed, the second reason why it seems maybe so elusive to some but available to others, is that this man, and to his credit, he was willing to employ what Jesus was willing to impart. See, Jesus gave him a command, didn't he? He said to the man, he said, rise, take up your bed, and walk. He told him to do something. And at that point, the man had another choice. He could say, I can't, or I've tried, or I don't want to anymore, or I have no hope. He could have done all of those things, or He could take Jesus' word and he could do what Jesus said, and he did it. He employed what Jesus imparted. Sometimes we have a power outage uh, at, at, you know, you guys do too. This is, you know, we live, we all live here, right? This is a small neighborhood, you know. But but we have this uh, generator. It's not a whole house generator. It's just, you know, the kind that you put gas in and pull the string, you know. And it's not powerful enough to run my whole house, But I have done the math and figured out the things that I can run with my generator. And so what I've done is, I I shouldn't probably say this on the tape, but I have made it so that I can plug my generator into my electrical box in my house, my panel that has all the breakers in it, you know. And I have marked all of the ones that I can run and not overload my generator and burn out my well and all the other stuff that comes with that, you know. But here's the thing that has to happen when I do that. I set up the generator. I plug it in. The first thing before doing any of that is that you have to shut off the 200-amp breaker, which is the main power feed that comes in from the street. That's a very important step because if you don't do that, you hurt send HUD workers that are back working on the lines trying to fix things because you end up sending electricity back to where they're working. And so they think it's dead, but you're charging them up you know so it's very important step that you shut off the 200 amps before you feed it from the generator you know and then it's shut off all the things that you don't use turn on the things that you do here here's the 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 advantage is obvious i can use my well i can use my fridge i can make coffee you know the things that i don't care about lights i don't care about anything else you know the necessities you know and do the things i need to do but here's the problem with that system 
is that there's no way to know when the power is turned back on. See, because I've got a generator. There's a power system that's not the main source. It's, it's It's a good enough power system. And because I'm running on the generator, I don't know if power has been given from the other source. And so my neighbor knows I do this. And so he's kind enough that often he'll call me and say, power's back on, you know, and and he lets me know or whatever. Or I check my phone continually and and, and just see, you know, whatever the thing is until it's on. But but here's how that illustration kind of translates into our life. God is and wants to be the power source, the thing that makes us complete and that makes us whole. He wants to do something in our life that's continually changing our condition. He wants to be our healer. He wants to be our shaper. He wants to be our sustainer. He wants to be our joy and the life that's in us, the abundance that he promises. He wants to be all of those things. What happens is, is that we are unfamiliar with that power, and so we get used to running on the generated power that we can stir up for ourselves. And so we run in our own strength, we run in our own wisdom, we lean on our own understanding, we use the limited resources that we have at our disposal, and we never know if the power is back on or if it's working because we're so used to doing things our way. We're used to figuring out the problems ourselves and solving the problems ourselves. And so we never know if even the power is turned back on. But what Jesus says to this man at this point is he says, I'm turning on the power. And now you have the ability to rise up and walk. And this man has the faith to be able to believe what Jesus says and then to try and see if the power is there. Now, how does that apply to you and I? Jesus is continually doing a work within us. At the moment of our salvation, we put our faith in him. And then what he does is he calls us to appropriate it. He calls us to lay hold of what he's provided and to walk in the power that he says that we have. And that means that we shut off the generator and that we stop leaning on our own understanding and we begin to walk in what he has given to us. Do you know that in all the history of planet Earth, as long as there has been Earth and as long as there has been man, There has not been one instance, not one ever, where God has made a chair. I'm talking about, you know, a stool, a seat, a chair, or a table. What God has done is God has made trees, and he's given us the creative capacity and the vision and the ability to employ the things at our disposal to take a tree and turn it into a chair. And the error that we so often make is that we are constantly saying, God, I need a chair. I need a chair, God. Give me a chair. God, if you give me a table. God, give me a table. God, I need a job. God, I I need you to give me a job. God, I need a spouse. God, would you give me a spouse? If you give me a spouse, God, I'll praise your name. God, I need more money. God, I need... And, and, And what God is saying, he's saying, listen... I have given you everything you need. Now get up and see that the power's on and take what I've laid before you and the power that I've promised you and do something with it. And this man had the sense to hear what Jesus said, to believe that it applied to him, 
and to lay hold of what God provided. And he found that the power was there. He laid hold of what God was willing to provide. The third thing that this man did, not just employing the power, or I'm sorry, rather, the third reason why it seems that sometimes it's so elusive or that it happens for some and not for others, and this is important. And here, you know, coming closer to a close, you've got to hear this. This is probably the most important thing that I will say tonight as it pertains to this issue of God's wholeness in our lives. The third reason why it seems so elusive is because sometimes wholeness comes without healing. Sometimes wholeness comes without healing, and here's why. Notice in verse 12 of the passage. After this man takes up his bed and walks, the Pharisees, the religious people, ask the question. They say, who told you you could do this? Why are you carrying your bed? It says that they asked him, what man is it that said to you, take up your bed and walk? And I want you to see, let's look at verse 13. And it says that he that was healed knew not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. They came to him and they said, who is responsible for this change in your life? And you know what the man said? I don't no, I don't know him. I don't know who it is. I don't know who he is. I don't know what's there. Now, here's the point. This man needed something from God. He got it instantly. He got it immediately. It happened right away. The whole thing, the whole process happened in an instant. He got new legs He was made whole on the inside. He was now empowered where before he had no power. But he walked away from it and he didn't know who God was. And then, notice what it says in the closing part of the passage. It says that Jesus encounters him, reveals himself again, tells him not to sin anymore. And what does the man do in verse 15? He takes his new legs that Jesus gave to him And he uses them to go to the Pharisees to tell on Jesus for healing on the Sabbath day, causing persecution to come to the Son of God. What does that mean? It means he didn't get it. So he didn't know God, and he didn't get it. He didn't understand. There was was a physical healing, but there was still a spiritual lacking. There was something that wasn't there. Now, there's a message here, and then there's a greater message. Here's here's the, the primary message. The primary message of the passage is that Jesus is the living water that you no longer have to try to get to, but he has come to you. Water, water, a constant theme, right? We've seen water all over John's gospel. We saw Jesus turn water into wine. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born of water, a symbol of being spiritually regenerated and made alive. The the woman at the well, he said, you're thirsty, but you need the water that I can give to you. Now we see water again in chapter 5. It keeps coming up. In in chapter 7, it's going to culminate with Jesus saying, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink, that he's the water. And, and, And the reason for this miracle, the reason for this sign, and what this sign points to, is the fact that it isn't any longer up to us to get ourselves to the water. The water has been manifested and the water comes to us. 
But there's a greater message even than that that's here in this passage, and here's what it is. Is that it's not about what the water can do. It's about who the water is. See, the water isn't a what. The water is a who. Jesus is the water. Do you understand that? Here's how, here's how that applies. Here's how it translates. Every one of us needs something from God. I see it all the time. People need something from God. I need a healing. I need help. I need help with my kids. I need help with my marriage. I need a job. I need more money. I need help in, in this particular instance. I need counsel. I need, you know, and people, we have crisis. We have things. And what happens is that God often will meet the need that the person has and as soon as he meets the need, the person is gone. I got what I needed from God. He fixed the thing in my life. I don't need God anymore. And see, they've missed it. Because God to them was a, a source. But he wasn't the source. It wasn't him that they were after. Wholeness is not the result of us getting what we need. Wholeness is the result of us being in communion with the Lord. That's where wholeness comes in. And this man didn't get that. He didn't have it. And that's what happens often in lives. People come to God, and it's about the what, but it's not about the who. If God does it, they leave, and they forget about him. If he doesn't do it, they leave, and they say that he's not real. And here's what you need to understand, is that if you get the what that you need in your life, but you don't know the who that did it, then the what that you received doesn't matter. And it won't ultimately satisfy. I wonder if that's the other reason why Jesus told this man to take up his mat. Because he knew that ultimately, eventually, he would need it again. Maybe not the next day or the next month, or that he would sin and something greater would come upon him. But eventually, what's going to happen to all of us? We're all going to be laying on some mat, right? Or in some hospital bed and... Ultimately, we're going to die not of good health. See, eventually everything falls apart. The only thing that remains is, do we really know him? Do we really know God? Healing doesn't satisfy no matter what. Life is not about what we get from God. It's about what we have in God or who we have in God. What did John say? John chapter 1 verse 4, he said, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The joy of life is knowing God. It's not in what God does for us. 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. John says, he says, That which we have heard or seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Listen, the joy of our life is not in what we get from God. It's in what we have in Him, in His person. And the reason I know that this is true, that, that, the, that the water is Jesus and that the healing isn't what we really need, the help isn't really what we need, it's him that we really need. You know why, how I know that? It's because whoever in the Bible gets that, whoever knows Jesus, they don't care if the healing comes. It doesn't matter to them any longer. You know, I think of the Apostle Paul. I think of the thorn that he spoke of in his flesh. He says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. Paul says this, he says, For this thing, this thorn in my flesh, 
this problem that I had in my life, this plaguing issue that I needed help with, he said, I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul said, most gladly, therefore, I would rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. And whether it's Paul's thorn or Jacob's limp, his thigh that was taken out of socket, or whether it was Daniel's lion's den or Shadrach and Abed, the three boys <laughs> and that fire that they were in, where they said, even if he doesn't deliver us from the fire, we're not going to bow down to your other God. We have enough of, of something going on between us and him that a little bit of burning on my skin is not going to help. Whether it was Abraham's fear, sometimes to be made whole, doesn't necessarily mean that I get healed. Maybe sometimes the condition that I'm in is necessary in order to keep me drawing close to him. Maybe he's allowing the infirmity or the weakness or the tendency or the addiction and the craving and the fight or the tension Maybe he's allowing that because it puts me in a place where I'm dependent on him and it's not about me being able to do it in my strength, but rather it's about him being what I can't be, him doing what I can't do. And Paul would say, I would most rather gladly rejoice in those infirmities because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He would say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he would say that I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And see what a greater treasure it is to have Jesus and to have wholeness on the inside. And you know what happens when he makes you whole on the inside? Is that he gives you the silent witness in your spirit, in the deepest part of you, that he's working in your life in spite of the thing that you need. And that he's working on the thing in your life that you're praying to him to help with. And that he's working through the issue in your life that you're putting before him to heal and fix. And because of that, you have a joy in spite of your circumstances and in spite of the fact that it hasn't been fixed yet. And that's what it means to be made whole. And see, Jesus wants to make us whole. And in the process, he wants us to know him. And he knows how to do it. And so we're here tonight. The encounter has happened. The question has been asked, do you want to be made whole? The answer, it's implied, is not going to be found anywhere in the kingdoms of men. And are you willing, am I willing to employ what Jesus willingly imparted? Well, what is that? 
What does that mean for you and me to employ what he imparted? It begins with trust. It's received by surrender. Say, God, I give up trying my own, my own ways, my own devices, my own things. It's letting go of my effort, my control, my script of how things are supposed to go. The preconceived outcomes that I've prescribed in my own mind of how he's going to work in the situation. And it's saying, God, my life is in your hand. And I'm letting go of it all. I'm letting go of conditions. God, I want to be made completely whole. And so I ask tonight, here in this place, in the presence of a Savior that makes all things new and does all things well, will you hear the voice of the Savior maybe even now say to you, rise? Maybe you're here tonight and you have something and you say, Lord, I'm ready to surrender. I'm willing to surrender. I want you to have it all. Would you, maybe in courageous faith even now, just rise to your feet? Say, Lord, I need to be made whole. This issue that I have in my life, this thing that I've been waiting on, this pain that I've been carrying, searching endlessly, waiting endlessly, I surrender the timing, the issues, how healing might or might not be manifested. If the outcome happens favorably or not favorably, I surrender it all to you. Only, Lord, in my heart, I want to be made whole. I want to be whole. What happens when we're made whole is that a lot of the peripheral things begin to heal. He restores us mentally. He restores our strength. He begins to give us vision or an idea or the beginnings of a path or there's a conversation and something begins to happen. And when we're whole on the inside, there's a satisfaction, but there's also a leading out of the thing that's plaguing us so great. Often, not always. But wholeness doesn't depend on healing. Father, we just pray tonight as we're here in in your presence. And Lord, in some area of our life, all of us are standing because we recognize our great need. And so would you, Lord, tonight, right now, meet us here? Would you help us where we can't help ourselves? Would you meet us in the thing that we have the greatest need of to encounter Jesus? Lord, we need you tonight. We believe that your power has been imparted, that the price has been paid, that the blood has been shed, that the resurrection has happened, that at the tomb of Calvary that you exploded forth, that the veil was torn and you provided the way, you've given us access that it isn't exclusive to a few, but it's universally available to all. And by faith right now, we receive and we believe. We grab a hold of what you've made available. And we ask that by the power of your spirit and by the power of your declared word, that you would give us wholeness in the deepest part of our hearts. And that we would know what it means to know Jesus. And that resurrection would happen on the inside renewal would work its way out so we surrender God we give you our whole self we ask that you would give us your whole self in return
you would be the water, our communion, our life. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Let's all stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.